He became the king of Egypt at the age of 16. And his official title was His Majesty Farouk I, by the grace of God, King of Egypt and the Sudan. And to the surprise of no one who has ever had a 16-year-old, or been 16 years old for that matter, his reign didn't really go well. The, the power, wealth, and influence quickly went to Farouk's head, and his gluttony became infamous. It is reported that he ate about 600 clams a week. It is also reported that he drank about 30 sodas per day. His unrestrained lifestyle led him to be labeled a, quote, stomach with a head. He had endless wealth at his fingertips, and he started going on extravagant shopping sprees. So he bought himself a red 1947 Bentley. And to ensure that no one would detract from his status, he had a rule that no one in his caravan could drive a red car because his could be the only one. And yet, despite his endless wealth, he always wanted more. During his rule, Farouk stole a ceremonial sword from the Shah of Iran, and he personally stole a pocket watch from Winston Churchill. It's reported that once Farouk had recurring nightmares of lions chasing him, and so he did what any rational person would do. He went to a zoo to see some lions and to work through his fear, and he proceeded to just have them all shot as they sat in their cages. Farouk was a glutton, a thief, he was unstable, he was sexually immoral, and his reign ultimately ended when he was overthrown in 1952 and he was forced into exile from Egypt. And ironically, he died in exile while eating a plate of oysters. His rule was pitiful, almost comical. And as we come to Jeremiah 38, we're going to observe the actions of another king who unfortunately had much in common with Farouk. A while ago, I had the chance to preach through the first half of Jeremiah 38, and tonight we get to return to this scene and really finish out the story. But it's been a while since I got to share with you from Jeremiah 38, so travel with me back in time to about 587, 586 BC. We're in Jerusalem, and as an act of God's judgment, the city of Jerusalem is about to be destroyed by Babylon. The city is currently under siege. Food and time are running out. So in Jeremiah 38, verses 1 through 6, focuses on the prophetic preaching of Jeremiah. He, he urges the people to repent of their sin, to surrender to Babylon, and to submit to God and get out with their lives. And not only do the leaders of Judah refuse to listen, but they try to have him killed. So Jeremiah is brought before the king, and this cowardly king named Zedekiah basically says he doesn't want to spare Jeremiah's life, but he also doesn't want to kill him either. So Jeremiah is thrown into a well, and he's left to starve to death. And then in verses 7 through 13, Jeremiah is rescued from a Gentile, or from the well by a Gentile who goes by the name Ebed-Melech. And now in verse 14 and following, we're going to spend some time with this cowardly king, this man in power named Zedekiah. In our lives, we learn what it means to faithfully follow the Lord, not just by watching the lives of those who are faithful, but also by carefully considering the lives of those that aren't. 
of those that refuse to submit to God's word. So this evening, we're going to eavesdrop on a, a conversation between Jeremiah and Zedekiah. So to put yourself into this scene, picture an hourglass. The last grains of sand are falling down. For Judah and for Zedekiah, time is running out. They're under siege. They're surrounded by enemies. So this scene is laced with political tension. This is the last time Jeremiah and Zedekiah will have a conversation before God's judgment falls and Judah is overrun by Babylon. But before that happens, the Lord is going to graciously warn Zedekiah one more time. So we have a longer text this evening. Instead of reading it all up front, I'm going to read it as we work through. We're going to go verse by verse um, through verse 23 and then jump to verse 28 to see how the story ends. So from Jeremiah 38, 14 through 23, we will draw three applications from Zedekiah's failure and ungodliness so that you will faithfully obey God in your life. So three applications. First, receive God's counsel. Second, revere God's character. And third, remember God's commands. Our first heading this evening is receive God's counsel. Look at verse 14. King Zedekiah sent for Jeremiah, the prophet, and received him at the third entrance of the temple of the Lord. The king said to Jeremiah, I will ask you a question. Hide nothing from me. Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, if I tell you, will you not surely put me to death? And if I give you counsel, you will not listen to me. And then King Zedekiah swore secretly to Jeremiah, as the Lord lives who made our souls, I will not put you to death or deliver you into the hand of these men who seek your life. So in verses one through six, Zedekiah was ready to passively let Jeremiah starve to death. But now he wants to have a conversation. Now he wants to have a little bit of a one-on-one. -on -one. So Zedekiah calls Jeremiah, the middle of verse 14, says to come to him at the third entrance of the temple of the Lord. And we don't know exactly where this entrance was, but it would be something similar to today. The president has his own entrances to the White House that are separate from the public. So this is some sort of private entrance to the temple just for the king. And this conversation begins at the end of verse 14. I will ask you a question hide nothing from me. So Zedekiah's kingdom is on the verge of collapse. Politically speaking, things look bleak. And he brings Jeremiah to him, and at face value, this seems like he's headed in the right direction, right? I mean, he, it's, it's not a bad thing when you go to get godly counsel. This is a good way to start. Be honest with me. Speak the truth. Hold nothing back. Don't hide anything. Tell me what I need to hear. But the way he phrases it tells us something about him, about his heart. Notice first off, he doesn't actually ask a question, does he? He makes statements. Throughout all of Jeremiah 38, in his pride, he will not ask God's prophet a single question. All Zedekiah is about to do is make statements. And when he says near the end of verse 14, I will speak, the I is in the emphatic position. We could say it this way. I will ask the questions here. I'm the king. I'm the one in control. So even as he seeks godly counsel, his entire demeanor is one of pride. 
and Jeremiah sees right through it. Look at verse 15. I tell you, if I tell you, will you not surely put me to death? To use our language today, Jeremiah basically says, you aren't going to gaslight me. I've been through this. I've lived this movie. I know how things are going. I mean, Jeremiah just went through this, and what did Zedekiah do? Have him thrown into a well. So Jeremiah says, even if you don't try to kill me this time, what's the point? You aren't going to listen to me. You're not going to do what I tell you to do from the Lord. And if you've ever given godly counsel, you understand exactly where Jeremiah is coming from. You, you speak to somebody, and it's like godly counsel goes in one ear and just out the other. And it doesn't take root in the heart. Zedekiah may have been hearing, but he wasn't listening. He wouldn't obey. He heard with his ears, but he didn't receive with his heart. And that's where true obedience begins, the heart. We understand what God says in the mind. It takes root in the heart, and then we obey, and it bears fruit in our lives. But Zedekiah had a proven track record of unfaithfulness, of hearing godly counsel and ignoring it, of hardening his heart and disobeying God. But he insists, no, 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 Jeremiah, this time it will be different. And so in verse 16, he makes Jeremiah a promise. Notice that he swears to him privately, meaning Zedekiah makes a vow, and he begins his vow this way. As the Lord lives, who made our souls. Okay, pause. That's pretty good theology. I mean, if we were there, we would say, not bad, Zedekiah. He, he uses God's covenant name, Yahweh, the one who was and is and ever shall be, the God of Israel, the, the God who gives life. When he says, who made our souls, he acknowledges that he owes his very life, his breath to the Lord. He's no atheist. He's not even pagan. He intentionally seems to affirm biblical Old Testament teaching. He seems to affirm Deuteronomy 32, 39. See now that I, even I am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. And there is a warning for us here. He asks for godly counsel, which he should. He believes truth about God, which he should. And he is a fool. And his foolish heart comes out not so much in what he says, but in what he doesn't say. Remember, Jeremiah gave two concerns in verse 15. Here are Jeremiah's two concerns. You will have me killed, and you won't listen. You will have me killed, and you won't listen. And notice carefully how Zedekiah responds in the middle of verse 16. I will not put you to death or deliver you into the hand of these men who seek your life. Do you notice anything about his answer? Zedekiah only addresses Jeremiah's first concern. He says, I won't have you killed. But he never comments on the second concern. He never says anything about actually listening to and applying what God, through Jeremiah, has to say. Remember James 1.22, but become doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. Zedekiah is the ultimate example of a man who is a hearer of the word, but not a doer. Unfortunately, he is like many today who view God's counsel essentially as life advice. It's take it or leave it. People that want God's counsel in their deck, but they want to ultimately play their own hand. 
They can hear good preaching. They can be well taught. They can hear sound biblical counsel. They can nod their head in agreement to sound doctrine, and nothing comes of it. And as I was reflecting on this, we are blessed as a church to hear strong biblical expository preaching week after week from a pastor that labors hard to stand in this pulpit. That is a gift. That is a blessing. And that is also a sobering responsibility. Godly instruction is like anything else God gives you. You must steward it. Carefully apply it. We have to think about Zedekiah when he had gotten into this dangerous habit we must avoid. He grew comfortable hearing what God says and doing nothing about it. When I was in high school, my dad had the unfortunate job of teaching me how to drive. And I was not the most teachable student. As far as I know, you could ask my parents if you ever see them. I don't think I was in general an obnoxious teenager, but I was obnoxious to teach to drive. And so I, despite that my dad had been driving for multiple decades and I've been driving for all the five minutes, I would always question him. And I would argue with him and I would even ignore his advice. And when I was first learning, I was particularly bad at following the speed limit. And he would try to drill into me and constantly remind me, William, you're going too fast. William, you're not paying attention. William, you don't know what the speed limit is. William, do you know what the speed limit is right now? And he would ask me over and over again, and I wouldn't listen, and I wouldn't change. And so one day, we planned to drive out to visit my sister in college. And it was about a five-hour drive. And I was so bad at paying attention to speed limit signs, my dad got an idea. And it's Christmas season, so to quote the Grinch, my dad got an awful idea. My dad had a wonderful awful idea. For the entire drive, he made me read out loud every single speed limit sign I passed for five hours. And later on when I was in college, the Lord actually strongly convicted me of how I acted. And I called my dad and I said, dad, I, I was a jerk. I'm so sorry. I'm convicted. Like I repent of my sin. Will you forgive me? And for the record, I now pay very close attention to speed limit signs. I'm very good at it. But in my pride at the time, I refused to listen to what I was being told. It is good to hear godly counsel, but don't just hear it. Zedekiah did that. Listen, heed, obey what you receive. So if you hear a sermon or receive godly counsel that reveals sin in your life, don't just say, I should do better at that and then move on. Repent. Obey God. In your life, one of the means God has given you to grow in his grace and walk in obedience to his word is godly counsel from other believers. This is a gift to us. Proverbs 1.5, let the wise hear and increase in learning and the one who understands obtain guidance. Or Proverbs 12, 15, the way of the fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. Not advice from the world, not advice from ungodly people who care nothing for the glory of God, but advice from godly believers who know God and want what is best for you. This is, comes in the form of biblical preaching, of private counsel, maybe reading Bible-saturated books. Don't be like Zedekiah. Instead, receive God's counsel. And that brings us to our second heading, revere God's character. Revere God's character. Look at verse 17. 
Then Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, if you will surrender to the officials of the king of Babylon, then your life shall be spared, and this city shall not be burned with fire, and you and your house shall live. But if you do not surrender to the officials of the king of Babylon, then this city shall be given into the hand of the Chaldeans, and they shall burn it with fire, and you shall not escape from their hand. King Zedekiah said to Jeremiah, I am afraid of the Judeans who have deserted to the Chaldeans, lest I be handed over to them, and they deal cruelly with me. Jeremiah begins, as he so often does, by getting his attention off of himself and onto the Lord. What God says. This is where godly counsel begins. Thus says the Lord. The phrase that occurs more than 150 times in the book of Jeremiah. This God who speaks is the God of hosts. The God who is over all armies and all authorities. The, the military might of Judah and Babylon and the heavenly hosts combined are like a child's toy cap gun compared to him. And notice in the next phrase in verse 17, the God of Israel. This is the God who chose Israel. The God who delivered Israel from slavery in Egypt, the one who formed the nation, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love to a thousand generations. This counsel is not ultimately from Jeremiah. It's from God. It's what the Lord says. This is what the king of kings says to the king of Judah. And God gives Zedekiah two options. Option A is surrender and live. Here's his first option. Look at verse 17. If you will surrender to the officials of the king of Babylon, then your life shall be spared. And this city shall not be burned with fire, and you and your house shall live. So there's option A. Here's option B. Continue in rebellion against God. Don't surrender. Die. Look at verse 18. But if you do not surrender to the officials of the king of Babylon, then this city shall be given into the hand of the Chaldeans, and they shall burn it with fire, and you shall not escape from their hands. So notice regardless, Judah is going to fall to Babylon. They will be forced into captivity. So Zedekiah can submit to God, accept the consequences of his sin, and spare the lives of himself, his house, and countless others in Judah, or option B, he can reject God's word, face even worse consequences for his sin, and cause the destruction of himself, his home, and the city. This is not the message Zedekiah wants to hear. But this is the message that Zedekiah needs to hear. This moment is his last hour. And God says, here is one more opportunity. Submit to me, listen, surrender to Babylon, and I will spare your life. This has always been God's heart. People rebel against him, and he lovingly calls them to repent. And he warns them, and he urges them to come to him while there is still time. But Zedekiah is not so sure. So he responds to Jeremiah and really to God. Look at verse 19. King Zedekiah said to Jeremiah, I am afraid of the Judeans who have deserted to the Chaldeans, lest I be handed over to them, and they deal cruelly with me. And just based on circumstances, this is an understandable response, right? I mean, he, he's afraid. This is very human. He's troubled. He's concerned. And what is he afraid of? Well, there had already been some Jews who had seen the writing on the wall. They could see politically where this was going. And so they had already surrendered to the Chaldeans, that is to the Babylonians. And Zedekiah fears, if I surrender now, those Jews that have already gone over here, they're going to deal cruelly with me. 
And those are strong words. This is Zedekiah's fear. He's afraid of being brutalized, of being tortured, of being killed. And we know that in war, often a captured leader becomes a public example, and he doesn't want that. And yet, as Zedekiah utters these words, his heart overflows with sin, like a sewer overflows with filth. So Zedekiah may be in a unique historical moment, but his sin is timeless and remarkably common. So here's the key question. What is the root of his sin? What's his deep issue? If you were doing biblical counseling with Zedekiah and he was sitting across the table from you, what does verse 19 tell you is the root of the sin in his heart? What causes him to be so afraid and keeps him from obeying the Lord? He doesn't fear God. And because he doesn't fear God, he is paralyzed. He is consumed with fear of man, and he is afraid. He is anxious. He is more concerned with what man can do to him than God. He is more concerned with his well-being than obeying God. And Zedekiah says, Zedekiah thinks to himself, if I listen to God, these Judeans might hurt me. And we can imagine the thought zipping through Jeremiah's mind, did you listen to a word I just said? If you don't listen to God, God is against you. But Zedekiah is too focused on man to care about God. And Zedekiah's sin should drive us to examine ourselves with this question this evening. Where is your reverence? You're all for God today. Do you ever tremble at who he is? Do you live with an awareness of his majesty, of your own weakness and an inability apart from him? Our situation is very different from Zedekiah's, but our sin is often shockingly similar. We fear God far too little, and we fear man far too much. Proverbs 1 verse 7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. The first step to gain wisdom and obey God is to fear the Lord, to have a respect and an awe and a reverence for God that leads to obedience So how does Zedekiah miss this? Why specifically should we fear the Lord? And there is so much we could say here, but for the sake of time, I want to keep it to three reasons we should fear the Lord just from the book of Jeremiah. So from Jeremiah, here's why we should fear God and not man. This is what Zedekiah missed and what we cannot afford to miss. First, you should fear God because he is your creator. You should fear God because he is your creator. And if God is the creator, what does that make us? creatures, creation, those who are under him. He is the one who spoke all things into existence by the power of his word. He is the one who hung the stars in the sky. He is the one who separated the waters, who set them in place and caused the dry land to appear. And in Jeremiah 5, verse 22, God asks a question of the nation that still penetrates our hearts today. Jeremiah 5, 22. This is our king. Do you not fear me, declares the Lord? Do you not tremble before me? I placed the sand as the boundary for the sea, a perpetual barrier that it cannot pass. Though the waves toss, they cannot prevail. Though they roar, they cannot pass over it. Waves stay within the boundaries that he sets and declares. Because he is the creator, there is not a drop of water that disobeys the word of God. So do you. Second, you should fear God because he is holy. 
fear God because he is holy. Listen to Jeremiah 25, verse 30. In Jeremiah 25, 30, God told Jeremiah, you therefore shall prophesy against them all these words and say to them, the Lord will roar from on high and from his holy habitation utter his voice. He will roar mightily against his fold and shout like those who tread grapes against all the inhabitants of the earth. So God's habitation, his dwelling place is holy because he is holy. Our God is other. Our God is set apart. Our God is transcendent. He is utterly pure and perfect and unstained by sin. And so Proverbs 9 verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. And how do you know if you truly revere this holy God? Well, how do you live? Will we claim to follow a God who is pure, but then allow our thoughts to linger on temptations and thoughts that are impure? Will we say with our words that we love what God loves, but then turn around and entertain ourselves with what our God hates? Would 1 Peter 1.15 always be a light to our path? But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Here's a third reason you should fear God, because he is your sovereign judge. Because he is your sovereign judge. Jeremiah 11 verse 20 says, But O Lord of hosts, who judges righteously, who tests the heart and the mind, let me see your vengeance upon them, for to you I have committed my cause. Why was Zedekiah so focused on the judgment of men who had defected to Babylon? Because he wasn't focused enough on the judgment of God. Because he wasn't focused enough on his accountability to God. In Matthew 10, 28, our Lord said, And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And this is so common today, but that doesn't make it any less sinful. Fear the one who gives you life. Live in awe of the one who is sovereign over life and death, over your soul, over blades of grass and bugs over specks of dust and sparrows. Fear the Lord, not man. Obey God, not man. And if we view God rightly, if we understand the depths of his care and his compassion, if we understand the infiniteness of his knowledge and his being, the vastness of his power, even if our circumstances tower over us and cause us to fear, we will obey God. Because obedience flows from a heart that is in awe of who God is. And Zedekiah missed that. That's what kept him from obedience. So don't be like Zedekiah. Instead, revere God's character. And here's our third heading for this evening. Remember God's commands. Remember God's commands. Look at verse 20 in Jeremiah 38. Jeremiah said, You shall not be given to them, Obey now the voice of the Lord and what I say to you, and it shall be well with you, and your life shall be spared. But if you refuse to surrender, this is the vision which the Lord has shown to me. Behold, all the women left in the house of the king of Judah were being led out to the officials of the king of Babylon and were saying, your trusted friends have deceived you and prevailed against you. Now that your feet are sunk in the mud, they turn away from you. All your wives... And your sons shall be led out to the Chaldeans, and you yourself shall not escape from their hand, but shall be seized by the king of Babylon, and this city shall be burned with fire. God's word is filled with contrasts. 
Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. There is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way to death. So speaking on behalf of God, Jeremiah draws sharp distinctions. In verse 17, if you will surrender, then your life will be spared. Verse 18, if you will not go out, then this city will burn. So notice, if, then. Action, result. Choice, consequence. Zedekiah is at a crossroads. God puts before him a path that leads to life and a path that leads to death. And the first path is found in verse 20. Jeremiah tells him, you shall not be given to them. Obey now the voice of the Lord and what I say to you, and it shall be well with you and your life shall be spared. Give yourself, give your future, give your job, give your life completely up to the Lord and obey his voice and God will bless you and show himself faithful to you. But now for Zedekiah, the specific application of these words is that he would live, that his life would be spared when the city fell. And of course, we today don't have that exact same promise. We can obey the voice of the Lord and we or those we love can get sick and die and face trial and tribulation. We can and often do obey the Lord and face tremendous suffering. But there is still a precious truth about our God here. There is a truth here that should soothe our souls, that should spur us on to obedience, to the man who fears the Lord, to the woman who fixes her mind on God's voice, what God says and obeys him. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you have been saved by his grace, if you are a blood-bought child of God, here is one more biblical promise from Zedekiah's failure I hope will be like jet fuel on your personal holiness. Obedience to God is always what is best for you. Obeying God is always what is best for you. Sin never is. The joy of obeying the Lord always outweighs the fleeting pleasure of sin. There is more blessing from God promised to those who love him and walk according to his word. And I'm not talking about the cheap, false promises and false blessings of the prosperity gospel. That's nonsense. That's not where I'm going. I'm talking about biblical blessing. I'm talking about Psalm 1 blessing. I'm talking about the blessing and joy that comes to a person and to a man and to his home when he delights in God's law and he meditates on it day and night and he walks in obedience to what God says. Proverbs 3.33, the Lord's curse is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses, he blesses the dwelling of the righteous. Do you want to be a blessing to those around you? Do you want to be a blessing to your children? to your grandchildren, to your friends? Do you want the tone of your home and of your life to be one of godliness and nourishment and blessing to others? Then love God and obey his voice. Verse 21 begins, but. So that is one promise of Zedekiah, but now verse 21, but. Here is the contrast. Here is the other path. What will happen to Zedekiah if he persists in his ungodliness? Well, to answer that question, the middle of verse 21 says the Lord gives Jeremiah a vision. He gets a revelation. God gives a direct 
specific word of judgment to Zedekiah if he persists in rebelling against the voice of the Lord. So in verse 22, Jeremiah describes a pathetic scene. The, the scene in verse 22 is one of utter defeat, even mockery. And the scene begins with women of the king's house being led away to Babylon. If he disobeys God, this is what he will get. The women are made up of Zedekiah's royal harem. This is his impressive lineup of trophy wives that he has found pleasure in. And this only further highlights his sin. Notice near the beginning of verse 23, all your wives, plural. He's a polygamist. He's a philanderer. He's a man that lives for his own pleasure. So here's the scene painted in this prophecy. Judah has fallen. The city lies in ruins. And the women, the pride and joy of Zedekiah's immoral life, are led away to his enemies. And not only are they led away, but as they do, they ridicule him. They mock him. This, this is pouring salt in the wound. This is how awful will the consequences be if the king refuses to submit to God. God answers, basically, even your women are going to mock you. You're going to lose everything. And they mock him with four lines of poetic ridicule in verse 22. Depending on your translation, you might have the four lines broken out one line at a time. If you see that in your Bible, that's because this is a form of poetry. And so here's the first line of this poetic ridicule. Your trusted friends... A king needs his advisors, people that he can trust and depend on, and even they will turn on him. Second line, have deceived you and prevailed against you. So his posse will act like they support him while he has power. But then the moment he falls, he will lose everything. They will mislead him and ultimately lead to his downfall. And so do we see the irony? In verse 19, Zedekiah is so afraid the Judeans will turn on him. But then in the middle of verse 22, God assures him, everyone's going to turn on you if you reject my way. You will never get what you truly want if you reject what I say. And the irony is even greater in the third and fourth lines. Now that your feet are sunk in the mud, they turn away from you. Your feet are sunk in the mud. And what does that make us think of? Jeremiah earlier in the chapter. Look with me at Jeremiah 38, verse 6. And there was no water. This is after Jeremiah has been thrown into the well by Zedekiah. And there was no water in the cistern, but only mud. And Jeremiah sank in the mud. Zedekiah thinks he is in control. He thinks he has the right to throw away God's prophet like a piece of trash, to reject God's word and be the master of his own little universe. But God says he will completely turn the tables. So then verse 23 repeats much of the same language found in verse 18. Look at uh, Jeremiah 38, 23. All your wives and your sons shall be led out to the Chaldeans, and you yourself shall not escape from their hand, but shall be seized by the king of Babylon, and this city shall be burned with fire. So God assures him, your sin will lead you to lose your family, your children, your political influence, your home. Zedekiah's sin is like a tidal wave that will crush everyone and everything around him. And so what happens to him? Well, he refuses to listen. 
Zedekiah sends Jeremiah off in verses 24 through 27, and he says, don't tell anyone about this conversation. He refuses to listen to God's counsel. And look at Jeremiah 38, 28. And Jeremiah remained in the court of the guard until the day that Jerusalem was taken. And when Jerusalem was taken, Jeremiah 39 describes that scene for Zedekiah in more detail. Look at Jeremiah 39, verse 6. The king of Babylon slaughtered the kings of Zedekiah at Riblah before his eyes. And the king of Babylon slaughtered all the nobles of Judah. He put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains to take him to Babylon. The Chaldeans burned the king's house and the house of the people and broke down the walls of Jerusalem. The prophecies are fulfilled exactly as God said. Zedekiah kept his sin, and God kept his promises of judgment. The king's family is killed in front of him. And as Jerusalem burns, it falls into the hands of Babylon. And so what do we do with this? What can we learn from these warnings and Zedekiah's tragic end? One simple application, believer, keep a short leash on your sin. We must remind ourselves regularly, God's warnings for us are for our good. Sin always brings consequences. Maybe not today, maybe not tomorrow, but a lit stick of dynamite will eventually explode. And our sin is against the Lord, and it is ultimately that it grieves God's heart and offends his holiness and his rebellion against him. But don't miss this either. Do you notice Zedekiah's sin didn't just affect him? It ruined his family, his children, his country. So is there any sin in your life that you knowingly tolerate? A secret sin that maybe no one will find out about. Or maybe that you think, well, this affects me, but nobody else. This is just my private thing. It will never get away from me. I can keep this under control. Do not be like the foolish man in Proverbs 7 who flirts with sin. He ends up going after the adulteress in his own lust, and he ends up as an ox going to slaughter, costing him his life. J.C. Ryle, one of my favorite preachers from the 1800s, once said this, quote, A holy man knows his own heart is like tinder and will diligently keep clear of the sparks of temptation. Are you a person who knows temptation can easily ignite your heart? So you avoid the sparks at all costs. Or are you the person who attempts to hold fire as close as possible, failing to believe what God says when he tells you you will burn yourself and those around you? If we learn anything from Zedekiah, we must learn this. Take your sin seriously. Do not coddle it. Do not cuddle it. Do not make excuses for it. Exterminate it. Mark it. Repent of it. And take God and his gracious commands to you seriously. And I know that many of you this evening are pursuing the Lord. And you, you strive by God's grace to obey him and to continually walk in repentance. And I praise God for that and give God glory for that. And so if that is you, let me just encourage you with these words. Don't grow weary. Don't give up. Don't let up. When it comes to sin, make no exceptions. Continue to diligently examine yourself wherever you are in your personal holiness and sanctification and ask, are there any cracks in my righteousness? Sin is often like a cracked windshield. 
a rock kicks up and it hits a windshield and you just have a little break. But then over time, what happens to that crack? It fractures and it grows and eventually it ruins and compromises the entire windshield until it shatters. So have you noticed that maybe you're being a little more impatient with those around you? Or have you noticed that maybe you're not intentionally looking at anything you shouldn't, but you're just allowing your eyes, your thoughts to linger on ungodly things just a little bit too long? Zedekiah's destruction was the sum total of his sin throughout the book, throughout his life. So fight your sin, even what you might consider the small sins, like your life depends on it, because it does. And glory to God, he has not left us in our sin. He has come in the person of Jesus Christ who obeyed his father perfectly. He kept God's commands down to the last detail. And he died on the cross and he willingly lays down his life and he takes the sin of his people upon himself and he bore the wrath we deserve and God's wrath strikes him so it need not strike us, and he rises victorious over sin and death, and he ascends to the right hand of the Father where he rules and reigns over all things, including your life. And we remind ourselves there is one mediator between God and man, and his name is Jesus Christ. And he saves us, and he begins to change us, to conform us to his image, to replace our sinful fear with godly reverence to gradually shape us into people who obey him in daily life, who know the joy and blessing of pursuing the Lord for our good and for his glory. Pray with me. Lord, I thank you for the godly examples we have in your word. There is no lack of men and women that we could turn to the pages of scripture and see incredible faith and trust and reliance on you. And Lord, I give you praise as well for the record that we have of incredible sin and foolishness in certain people, including Zedekiah. Lord, I pray that we would never think that we do not have these same kinds of sins lurking in our own hearts. Lord, I pray that we would see ways that we are like Zedekiah and that we would cut them out, not so that we might uh, somehow earn a right standing with you, but because we long to glorify you and we long to obey you and we want to be like the king of kings, not this king of Judah. So Lord, I thank you for Christ and that in all the ways that we fall short, he is perfect and help us to revere you and obey you and to take seriously your promises of blessing and your warnings uh, in our, of sin in our lives. And it's in the name of Jesus, I pray, amen.